brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Social Impact Pioneers podcast series. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. These interviews with social impact pioneers provide you with insights, different perspectives, advice, and maybe a little inspiration, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. This podcast forms part of a short series recorded during and from the 2022 Climate Conference, COP27, which is taking place in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. The aim is to hear what it's really like to be part of the global convening to address climate change and also to hear directly from the people at the conference. What motivates them to travel from across the world to engage for global climate action? Today, I'm joined by Juan Pablo Solis Viquiz. He's Costa Rican born, now based in Germany. This is his sixth COP. Juan Pablo studies economics and policies. He has a background in ecological and sustainable development, with 15 years in international development, strengthening capacities for vulnerable people in Africa, Latin America, and Asia. Today, he is the senior advisor of climate and environment at Fairtrade International. And he joins us from COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, in Egypt, and is here to tell us what he thinks about the whole experience. So I'm joined today by Juan Pablo, who has been already, as far as I can gather, part of the uh, COP27 climate conference. He's sitting in front of me wearing his uh, delegate's badge and uh, hot-footed it across uh, to have this conversation. Juan Pablo, first of all, welcome. But I wanted to start our conversation. What's brought you to COP27, to Sharm el-Sheikh here in Egypt? And, and what are you hoping to get out of it? Thanks, Kate. Thanks for the invitation. Also, thanks for the uh, people that is. Uh tuning in. I, I would say that probably what brings me to COP27 is stubbornness and positiveness. <laughs> uh, this is not my first COP and, and it's always this mixed feeling of positive energies, bringing people together, discussing and discussing and discussing, hopefully get into an agreement or let's say more, more commitments. But at the same time, it's like, okay, you have to honor the commitments. So like that, that bitterness part of the equation now and got the seventh part of what brings me here like asking people to be accountable not just promising and how are you finding this particular cop um so we had a bit of a chat before we started recording this and Juan Pablo perhaps you'd fill in a bit about first of all how many cops you've already been to and I guess the evolving experience how does this cop compare to previous ones yeah, my first was in Rio de Janeiro in 2012, and at that time I was one of those like civil society uh, grassroots movements, like people in the streets. No? Now I have my sure, I hope. <laughs> but um, I remember after COP26 in Glasgow, I was sitting with the 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 chair of the board of fair trade, and I was, what what is the main lesson? And for both of us, we're like, yeah. Nice conversations. It was the first COP after the pandemic. A lot of things were discussed, a lot of promises, a lot of new hope. But how we make this new 
commitments reality and not stop. Uh, we signed a policy paper uh, this year together with the uh, Fair Trade Movement, and the title that we came with was like, the clock is ticking because we don't have time. If we look back, there's less than eight hours to reach the sustainable development goals and climate emergencies everywhere. So there's no much time for just debating. We need action. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, you work at the interface between ultimately climate change, climate action and communities. Can you share with us, for those listening who haven't perhaps come across fair trade or indeed the work that you guys do specifically helping and looking at climate change and, and the communities and the smallholder farmers that you're working with. Can you share a bit about what that work is and, and why it's important? Sure. Maybe to start, let me explain how fair trade works in very simple terms. So fair trade is kind of a partnership between those that buy the product and those that produce the product, you know, like consumers, medium producers. And we set different like criteria uh, in our standards. There are standards for producers. There's also standards for high labor organizations. Uh, we have also a climate standard. And in the standards, there, there's different, again, criteria to set uh, environmental rights, uh, environmental due diligence. One of these, uh, for instance, is that we support producers. So we want producers to embrace agroecological principles as a way to transit into a more resilient pathway. A significant percentage of our fair trade certified producers are already organic certified. So this double certification is recognized by the market. And the recognition that, let's say, the unique selling point of fair trade is that there's a minimum price in all the products that helps and like a safeguard. When volatility in the market price go randomly, there's always a minimum price that protects these producers to confront with prices that are lower the cost of production. And on top of the minimum price, there's premiums. So if, again, if you're organic, you receive a premium. These are kind of the characteristics of those producing fair trade certified products uh, that differentiate them from other certifications. Now, uh, on the specific climate actions, uh, we divide that, well, as many people do, climate adaptation, climate mitigation. For adaptation, let's say step-by-step approach, a cyclical approach is that a producer organization understand the dynamics, what are the, let's say, environmental risks associated. And from these environmental risks, they support producers creating a climate adaptation plan. And the climate adaptation plan then is evaluated to see the adoption of practices and how successful was the, the let's say, plan put in place, in, in place. And on the mitigation side, we have, as I mentioned before, the climate standard. And that is, let's say, the standard that rules the generation of carbon credits. So if a producer organization is also, besides producing coffee, also producing, let's say, planting trees or engaged in an improved cookstove uh, facility, those removals can be verified and offered in the carbon market. And the same principle, a minimum price for a fair trade carbon credit is set and a premium that goes for adaptation. Those are kind of the uh, two examples of the things that the system is doing at the moment. So not only just, not only really helping people find, you know, just survive climate change, but actually find ways to be part of a sort of transition to a greener, green solutions as well, I guess. Exactly. Part of the, let's say, uh, message uh, and the lobby with companies is, 
the minimum price is a, a safeguarding mechanism, not enough. So you, if you really want to commit as a company, you need to set your targets, but also pay uh, benchmarks like high prices. Like for instance, we in each in different countries we have a fair trade living income reference price. Again, living income reference price may not be enough, but that's the, the first step. Uh, we understand that a producer that is not receiving a fair deal will not give priorities to other climate emergency referral. So if you really want to support these communities to overcome the climate crisis, the market needs to react. So that's part of the back and forth discussion with the market as well. And, and so leading on from that question, we are business rights property. We are looking at the business interactions on these sorts of pieces. Clearly, you sit almost as a sort of broker between suppliers and, and smallholder farmers, medium-sized farmers, producers, and the bigger business. What's your recommendation for how those bigger businesses can really lean in and, and put people at the heart of their climate action? If you see it in the, let's say, share of the company that is trading bananas or cocoa or coconuts, for you, probably what will be important is to understand how much is the footprint of my product and how can reduce how can I reduce that? No? If especially if you're a company that has set science-based targets or net zero commitments. But if you are sitting on the other side of the producer, yeah, they need funding. Well, not funding, I would say they need a fair deal from the market to reinvest in climate adaptation. So on one side, for a company, mitigation is important and understanding this whole dimension of their footprint and science-based targets. But on the other side, for producers, it's adaptation what is important. So it's kind of a bottom-up agenda meeting a top-down agenda and, and how you mix this both. And, and that's pretty rational also that we have with the climate standard. The climate standard is for carbon credits, but with a premium for adaptation. We understand that companies that really wants to get involved in, in, in fighting uh, climate change at community level, they need to do both. They need to be reactively partner with their communities and the origins and not only sourcing products. That, that is not enough anymore. And so what does a convening like COP27, so a massive global climate conference, what does this do for your work? How does it help or why, you know, why, why come? It is important to raise awareness. Um, we don't want to say that FEDRE has all the solutions, but definitely we are fighting uh, as much as possible within our boundaries to provide solutions, to prove that trade can also lead to decarbonization. And that's the message that we have been building over these years. Uh, this is the message also that um, we want to test the, the hypothesis we want to test this year and the years to come, that we understand economic systems as one of those big challenges of our time. You know, if we really, as a, um, uh, as a society, want to overcome climate change or climate crisis, uh, our economic system needs to also be transformed. And we work in trade. So for us, is demonstrate that trade can lead to decarbonization as well. And so for those who perhaps aren't here at this COP or indeed any other uh, climate conference, what does it feel like? What does it look like? You know, what would be your kind of 
how can you paint can you paint us a picture of, of what it's like just to give everybody a bit of a sneak peek I, I was telling you that the first day at COP for me has always been chaotic <laughs> so it's a lot of chaos happening but the good thing about chaos is that ended up in let's say a, a new horizon a new uh, solution a new idea uh, what I saw today, there was uh, I was in the blue zone in, in the convention center. A lot of people moving, a lot of people uh, eager to uh, do something to change the current narrative. Kind of, they all guys like me, like tired already to be there year after year uh, with the same engaged in the same conversations. But at the same time, new generations that are uh, interesting to uh, do things different because they see the urgency more than us or generations. So that makes it interesting to see. Uh, that was something that I, had, I saw today quite interesting. Um, and yeah, if you go there in the main events, it's like uh, the member states are sitting in their chairs discussing, and then the rest of, let's say, the society is talking in other rooms about what they have done. And I don't want to encourage that too much, but I think that what is needed is also reflecting what can happen if we are not transform our current pathways. What is the potential scenarios of uh, if we are not reaching the Paris Agreement, if we are not reaching the 1.5? This is at least um, most of us more or less that are engaged in research, have a clear idea, but the general public doesn't. I live in Germany. I'm not German, but I live in Germany. And last year, with in the spring and the um, rainy season, there was a lot of floating near near the, the region I live. And people start saying, "What this this had never happened here, and this not have ever happened before in Pakistan. This had never happened before in China." So, something that is right now here with us. And that's uh, the urgency that sometimes we don't pay too much attention to conferences. Yeah, connecting those dots as well. Like it's not just, I keep hearing, you know, this is a once in 400 year phenomenon. It's not going to happen again. And you're thinking, well, it probably will actually. And, and we're going to see more and more of them. And therefore, for those who are listening, whether you're either in Sharm El Sheikh or at home, what would be your message? What would be the kind of call to action that you'd want to get across? Well, the, the former Secretary General of uh, UNFCC, Cristiana Figueres, also Costa Rican like me. <laughs> uh, so I got a lot of inspiration by, uh, from her. But Cristiana used to say that those of us that are working in climate change, we need to maintain our positive stubbornness. So I would say to those listening, uh, to, to keep on your track, keep stubborn, uh, asking your local governments what they are doing about climate change asking your supermarket what they are doing for climate change asking all the people that you are engaged around what they are doing regarding uh, combating uh, climate crisis and looking back us and our practices sometimes the power of one can move a lot no and be empathic also with the reality of those that are producing the food, because that's probably the, the, the biggest of the message. You know? um, one of the learnings from the pandemic is that those that are producing food are essential workers for maintaining the society as it is. 
but probably are one of those that are not receiving the benefits, the ones that are not considered as important in society as, let's say, other professions. And agricultures and farmers are, we need to be more empathic with their realities. Thank you very much for sharing. So there you go, power of one and uh, positively stubborn, plus all the other bits in between. And and so what's next for you? Where are you off to next? Uh, so we are we're currently uh, hiding out recording our podcast uh, on the on the peripherals the fringe of COP27 where next for you where are you off to tomorrow today but also sort of into the coming weeks yeah well today was the first day for me uh, attending COP uh, but COP this is there is here for two weeks uh, so we have side events we have been trying to look for spaces where producers representing the voices of uh, those, again, most vulnerable, can can speak loudly. Uh, so we have organized different sessions. Uh, there's two of them on Friday, another one Monday next week. So please go to our social media. There's more information there if you want to, to, um, to get more information. The sessions are going to be also live streamed in the UN SCC YouTube channel also. Uh, but the idea from now is also share a bit of our learnings and also sharing um, suggestions of how to improve the practice. Again, how trade can be proven to provide a good track of decarbonization. This is kind of the message that we want to build these next two weeks. Well, the very best of luck in all your work and uh, carrying on being positively stubborn. Juan Pablo, thank you very much for giving your time. And anybody listening, I'll make sure I put those links into the words that sit alongside the podcast today. Juan Pablo, thank you. Thank you so much. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. 